We're in Romans, and last week we got through the first 11 verses of chapter 8. And one of the things I want to revisit is back in chapter 7. I'll start at the beginning. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Far be it from me to criticize Paul. He's the apostle. He's the one that wrote all those things in the Bible, and I didn't do any of that. But I am going to suggest to you that that's not a very good example. And the reason for that is marriage carries with it a whole bunch of other stuff that as people are listening to it, they sort of factor in, and I'm suggesting that they get the analogy wrong. Let me suggest a better analogy for you. Let's say you live in Oklahoma, and you're under the laws of the state of Oklahoma. And if you violate any of those laws from going over the speed limit to murder, the laws of Oklahoma are binding upon you. So then, let's say you moved to Kansas. Well, you're no longer bound by the laws of Oklahoma. You've gone into a different jurisdiction, neglecting extradition and all that stuff. That's far more detailed than the analogy will support. And what the deal is, is when you move from Oklahoma to Kansas, Kansas doesn't have the death penalty. Oklahoma does have the death penalty. So if you violate murder or any of the number of laws in Oklahoma, you are subject to the death penalty. If you violate those same laws in Kansas, you are not subject to the death penalty. You, in fact, can repent and ask for forgiveness from God. So the analogy here of, of the law is what you've done is you have changed jurisdictions from the earth, which is under the law of sin and death, to heaven, which is under God's grace. Now, one of the things that I think we said last time, but we'll certainly say again this time, is that the rules in Kansas are exactly the same as the rules in Oklahoma. It's just as illegal to murder somebody in Kansas as it is to murder somebody in Oklahoma. The difference is Oklahoma has the death penalty and Kansas does not. So instead of using this example of marriage, which as I say is just loaded with all sorts of other stuff, I think perhaps a, a more understandable example becomes when you change from the world and following the world system to God's kingdom, you have moved from essentially Oklahoma to Kansas and the death penalty no longer applies. I think that's perhaps a more understandable analogy than the business with marriage and adultery and, and all that kind of stuff, which as I say is, is rather difficult to understand. So with that, let's now go down to chapter eight, which is where we sort of left off. We read the first part of chapter eight last time, but I wanna pick it up at the beginning. 
in light of what I was just talking about. Chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Messiah Yeshua from the law of sin and death. In my little analogy, you have moved out of Oklahoma and you have now moved into Kansas and murder is still against the law in Kansas. It's just that there's no death penalty there. That's what Paul, I'm suggesting, is saying. So, verse 3, For God has done what the law, the Torah, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the idea is you have changed jurisdictions, and the thing that allows you to change jurisdictions is the fact that Yeshua came and accepted the entire curse of the law, his payment for the debt to society. And Remember that old phrase from cop movies ages ago? You've paid your debt to society, which is to say you've been in prison or whatever it is, and now you're let out. So what Yeshua did in this sense is paid humanity's debt to God for having made the entire race mortal. And what God does by raising him from the dead is he says, you're right, the debt is paid. And oh, by the way, all of your brethren, humans, us, people, all of your brethren now have the right to also become my children. And that's something you get by accepting Yeshua, believing in the promises of God. And that moves you from Oklahoma to Kansas in our little example. And in Kansas, the righteous requirements of the law, the debt to society, however you want to describe that, in Kansas, they've been paid. In Oklahoma, they haven't. I'm hoping that that's a better example than the marriage one, because I say the marriage example, when you try and explain it, just gets all wrapped up in all sorts of stuff, you know, adultery, fornication, all those questions come up when you talk about that as an example. Paul is Paul, and Paul did what Paul did, and God ratified it by putting it in the Bible, but I don't like that example. All of this is to instill us with hope, and what I'm suggesting is, again, God bless him, when Paul hits the Western mind as opposed to the Hebrew mind, which he grew up with, when Paul hits the Western mind, the Western mind looks at this and we wind up with all sorts of weird interpretations, such as Torah is no more, such as, we'll get to tonight, predestination. All these kinds of things happen when the Western mind comes up against Paul because we're bringing a different cultural context to it than what Paul grew up with. In our little analogy, if you move from Oklahoma to Kansas, murder is still forbidden. In other words, the Torah, the rules, have not changed. What's changed is the potential penalty. And what I will suggest is if you move to Kansas and you start murdering people, God is going to look at you and say, 
oh, wait a minute, you're an illegal alien. You're not really a citizen of Kansas because a true citizen of Kansas wouldn't be doing stuff like that. Now, that's not to say that if you run a stop sign, have an accident, you know, any of the normal stuff that we all do, that you're going to be thrown out. But if you are what the Bible would call wicked, when you're living in Kansas, I will suggest that God will look at you and say, uh, wait a minute, you're an illegal alien, and send you back to Oklahoma. At some point, every analogy breaks down, and I'm not suggesting this one is perfect, but it helps me to understand what's being said here, whereas crunching my way through Paul's long, convoluted sentence often does not. So, moving right along. We're at verse 5 in chapter 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And in our little analogy here, what he's saying is even if you manage to get yourself into Kansas somehow, if you are living according to the flesh, which means that you are biblically wicked, I suspect God is going to look at you and say, let me see your passport here. You don't look like a citizen of Kansas. You look more like a citizen of Oklahoma. Mary said that, well, I was born in Kansas. And according to the flesh, of course, you were. But what that does is it leads to the idea of being born again. And so one of the things that you have to do in order to become a citizen of Kansas is you have to be born into Kansas. Hence, born again. Thank you. That's a really good concept. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, notice that he is writing to believers. Everybody reading this letter is a believer of some kind. Some of them are rabbinic Jews, some of them are proselytes, some of them are messianic Jews, some of them are Gentiles who have believed the gospel and have come into the synagogue to read the books. But notice he says, just because you're in the synagogue doesn't necessarily mean that you're a citizen of Kansas. So let me read it again now. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Messiah Yeshua from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you. Everybody see what's going on here? To use the old preacher's joke, just because you live in a garage doesn't mean you're a Ford. And that's basically the argument he's making. Just because you guys are in the synagogue and you're reading this letter doesn't necessarily mean that you live in Kansas. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. One of the things that has to happen to get you into Kansas is you have to die. That's what the baptism is, remember? You go down into the waters of baptism, symbolically you die, and you come back up to be reborn. Born out of the waters just like the earth was. Furthermore, even though you live in Kansas now and there's no death penalty, that doesn't mean that everything is beer and Skittles because you still have all of the difficulties of living in this world, and the difficulties living in this world are designed to perfect your character. Remember, we talked about that several times ago. The world is difficult by design, and it's just as difficult in Kansas as it is in Oklahoma. It's just that there's no death penalty in Kansas. If I push this analogy too far, wave your hands and stop me. It seems to be going pretty well right now, but if I drive that car too far, let me know. So, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be real to us. Remember we said a couple of times ago, I don't remember what chapter we were in, that this world is designed to be difficult, and the reason it's designed to be difficult is because it's designed to develop your character. And the character that you develop is, for some reason known only to God, necessary in the world to come. There isn't any point in putting people through all of the stuff that we all go through if there's no purpose to it. God could have made the place smooth as a billiard ball, we all sit around on our blessed assurance, and never have any problems, and always have manna, and nobody gets upset with anybody else, and when we die, we just move on to the next phase of our life. He could have set it up that way. He chose not to. He chose to make this place very difficult. And Paul says in other places that difficulty produces character. Romans 5, pick it up in verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And the thing we talked about while we were in that chapter a couple weeks ago is the whole purpose of your life here is to develop your character so that in the world to come, whatever purpose God has for you there, you will be suitable for it because you have the character that will enable you to do what God is going to call on you to do, whatever that is. And I have no idea what that is. I'm not suggesting I have some idea of what's planned here. I'm simply saying that Paul and common sense both say, if there's no purpose to all this suffering, then it's just cruel. And God's not cruel. Let's pick it up at 18 again now. Romans 8, 18. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? We are. So the idea here is, is the whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the revealing of what you are going to become. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Stop there for a minute. Who is he? Him who subjected it. Adam. Adam is the one who subjected it to futility in hope. Not willingly. Now, because remember in Peter, Peter says Adam was not deceived. It said Adam knew exactly what was going on. He was not deceived. And we've talked about this before. So the woman eats of the forbidden fruit. One of Adam's options could be, whoa, babe, are you in trouble? Stay away from me so I don't get caught with the backsplash of the lightning. He could have said that. Instead, what he did is he chose to follow her into where she was with the idea that he would eventually then be able to affect her redemption and not only her redemption, but the redemption of the whole creation. The example of Adam who followed Eve into death because he loved her and he gave his life not for her personally, but for her racially, in other words, the whole race, is in fact anticipatory of what Yeshua does. And Yeshua is the second Adam. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay, what he's saying here, and he says it actually, I think, better in Ephesians 1. In fact, let's go ahead and go to Ephesians 1. That's my go-to place for this. And he is saying the same thing differently. So I'm going to pick it up in Ephesians 1.11. In him, Yeshua, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Messiah might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the point is, the spirit becomes your earnest, your claim check, your marker, however you want to describe it, that you have an inheritance waiting for you. We, however, do not yet have that inheritance. That is going to be in the world to come. 
but the Spirit is your marker that you're going to get it. And Paul is saying the same thing back here in Romans, where he's talking about hope. He says, if you had it, you wouldn't have to hope because you'd have it. So the fact that you are hoping is evidence that you do not yet have what you have been promised. God set up a trust. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I'm not going to go into Musar right now, but one of the things that we talked about in Musar is you are being in a number of parts. You know, we set up a block diagram of what a human looks like. So you got a body, you got a soul, and a spirit to make it really simple. Your spirit is your connection to God. Your soul is your, sort of your connection to this world. In other words, that's the part that you plot and ponder with. When we ate of the forbidden fruit, our connection spiritually got fuzzed up. I believe that we were designed to have direct access through the spirit to God and angels and all that kind of stuff. We were simply the part of God's creation that had physical bodies, and we had stuff to do down here, but we had a wide open telephone line, if you will, back up to the home office. When we ate of the forbidden fruit, that line got screwed up. So we no longer know what we should know, which is to say what to pray for, what to talk to God about, how to get instructions, all those kinds of things. We no longer know that because our connection is messed up, got messed up in the garden. So what Paul is saying here is the Spirit steps in and serves as the link by praying for us things that we don't actually know what to say. So we're in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we're in predestination now. And this is another place that people get all wrapped around the axle. I was listening to Ron Dart the other day, and he has the best explanation I have ever heard of what that means. Predestined means destined beforehand. And the example he used, let's say that you want to go from here to Chicago, and you buy a ticket on an airplane when they're flying. You are now predestined to go to Chicago. You have made Chicago your destination ahead of time. If you get on the airplane, and everything works properly mechanically, you'll wind up in Chicago. You don't have to get on the airplane. If the airplane makes a stop in Topeka, you could get off. The fact that you are predestined to go to Chicago because you bought a ticket for Chicago doesn't mean that you are going to wind up in Chicago. Now, it makes it very likely that you will. And what God says is if you get on my train, 
that is heading from here to the world to come, I will assist you and make sure that you have every opportunity to stay on that train until you get there. And furthermore, I will work with you, develop your character, do all sorts of things as you go on that train. But again, if you decide to jump off, he will not stop you. What it says is God here in this case, whom God foreknew, he predestined, which is to say God got your ticket for you. Here is your ticket to wherever, there it is. If you stay on the train or the bus or the airplane or whatever mode of transportation it is, as long as you stay on there, that's where you're going to be. But there isn't anything about it that says you couldn't get off if you wanted to. And some people do. I think God bought a lot of tickets. But not everybody gets on the train or the bus or the plane. Not everybody stays on it for the whole trip. That's your free will. You have a choice whether or not you stay with the motor transportation to the destination that has been decided ahead of time, predestined. Calvinism says you don't have any choice. Once God buys your ticket, he's sticking you on the train like a sack of mail, and you're going to stay there until it gets to the other end, and then it'll be taken off, and you've got no choice in the matter. That's Calvinism. And if he didn't buy you a ticket, you're just out of luck because there's no way you're going to Chicago. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Messiah Yeshua is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Back up and let's unpack that a second. What he's saying here is, going back to our original analogy, If you have moved out of Oklahoma and you're now in Kansas, God is your governor. And God will not listen to lying accusations from Satan about you. He's the one who has let you into Kansas. He is one who's justified you. He is the one who has made you righteous. He is the one who gave the son for you that you may move to Kansas. And he isn't going to put up with anybody trying to take you out of Kansas. He is also not going to allow anybody to make Oklahoma laws apply to Kansas while you're there. The only one that can get you out of Kansas is you. And, oh, by the way, when it says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, again, that's a function of us being in this world with all of its trials and tribulations and all of the stuff that happens, but all of the stuff that happens to you in this world, and some of it can be pretty grim, is not sufficient to get you out of Kansas and back to Oklahoma. So let me pick it back up at 36 and read all the way to the end of the chapter. So 36. As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. The way I read that is all of those things are subject to happen to us in this world even though we are citizens of Kansas. And that none of those things, even though they may happen to us, is sufficient to get us out of Kansas. Somebody once said, and I'm not sure I buy this, I'm just saying it for purposes of illustration. Somebody said, being more than a conqueror is someone who conquers without having to fight a battle. But the point is, what's the victory? The victory is waking up in the world to come and stepping off into the second half of your life in the presence of God, doing whatever it is he's got for you to do in the next world. That's the victory. The victory doesn't necessarily happen in this world 